Um, if you would grab your Bibles and go to the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be learning from Matthew 11. Uh, Matthew is first book in the New Testament. So all of the Gospels are wonderful stories. They are stories with a purpose. Each Gospel author arranges their accounts to demonstrate particular aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ's character, nature, and work. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew particularly uh, demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament promised. He is the new Israel who obeys God where Israel failed. He's the new Moses who reveals God's law, who reveals who God is. He's the new David who brings the kingdom. Um, in this particular section of Matthew, we see people responding to Jesus and his message of the kingdom. We see them responding to him in various ways. And what's very interesting is it's not what you'd expect. You'd expect, well, if Jesus is the one preaching, if he's the one ministering, people are flocking. And some people are coming. The lowest of society are coming. Uh, but many people are questioning him. Many people are ignoring him. And some people are even plotting to kill him. And so in Matthew 11, uh, verses 25 to 30, we get to see Jesus responding to all these different responses to him. Jesus interprets uh, what's going on. So, if you ever wondered what Jesus would say if he appeared in the back seat of your car this morning as you were driving to church and he observed the mixed responses of your heart to everything he's revealed, or if you are curious uh, what Jesus would say about all the mixed responses we have in this room and the mixed responses we have in Mount Pleasant culture, and the mixed responses we, we have in America. This passage is for you. Also, have you ever wondered how God would, wills that you respond to Jesus this day, this moment? This passage is for you. Let's, uh, let's hear the scriptures and ask the Lord's blessing upon them. Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for what this passage reveals about you, that you are full and good and overflowing and that you invite us to partake. But Lord, we, we, just, we just plead for faith. It is so easy to hear the scriptures, to hear them preach, to preach them, and to not respond to you. And so we just plead the Spirit would come and indeed bring that rest that Jesus promises here. We pray in his name. Amen. So it was one of those rare moments where I got to escape the fog of my life and see the beauty of my life. It was last Saturday, 
the day did not start that way. I uh, did a little two-on-one time with my children, uh, two of them, one of me. Zone defense is what we call it, parenting. Um, my wife got to work out. She got home after a few sharp words, I'm sure, on my part. And uh, we decided we need to wear these kids out. So we uh, decided to go on a family walk up the Ravenel Bridge with a three-year-old and a five-year-old. We arrive at 1045, immediately regret waiting that long to go for a walk. It is a hot, sweaty blanket outside. Um, We get on the bridge. I am pushing my three-year-old in a stroller uh, up this giant hill with great benefit to my cardiovascular health. My 38-week pregnant wife is wrangling our five-year-old who just wants to run in the bike lane, right? What's the big deal? It's not like people are coming by at 40 miles an hour about to run you over, right? So here we are, typical Saturday, family messy. But we finally get to the top. There are benches. We brought snacks. These snacks transform my children immediately into little angels. They are satisfied. Finally, the breeze picks up, and I just get to sit there, breeze in my face, looking around for miles with this beautiful family. And it just dawns on me, it was just like a breath of fresh air, like waking up this morning and it being 70 degrees, right? My life really is beautiful, right? My world really is beautiful. Those moments are are wonderful and precious, but they are rare, aren't they? Maybe for you it's that one night out with your friends, when you're actually having fun, you forget yourself for a second, you forget all the pretension, you just get to just to be. Maybe for you it's that all elusive date night. Maybe it's a great ending to a wonderful book over a cup of coffee. Maybe it's an hour where you get to forget your grief. This passage is one of those moments. We get a moment of clarity. If you just read the Gospels carefully, it's very confusing sometimes because if people don't respond to Jesus the way you'd expect, it's messy. Jesus' ministry was a mess. All these things are happening. We'll see exactly what's happening in a moment, but what we see now is Jesus' perspective on everyone's response to him. We get to see what Jesus sees in all the mess of human life. And what he sees is beautiful. He sees God working out salvation. And if we can get a hold of this truth, if we can internalize it, trust it, we will be able to find our joy in our mess. So first, let's see what Jesus sees. Verse 25 says, at that time, Jesus declared, Matthew takes a couple of extra words to make sure we know it's this particular time in the gospel in which he says what he says. And it's very interesting because in Matthew 11, before this passage, we see some very strange responses to Jesus. First, John the Baptist, who was the most righteous man to ever live before Christ, sends Jesus some messengers and hears his message. Are you really the Messiah? John the Baptist was doubting Jesus, the most righteous man to ever live. Tim Keller walks into this church and he says, are you guys even really Christians? That's kind of the message there. He's doubting Jesus' Messiahship. Going on, Jesus starts condemning his culture because they just want Jesus to dance to whatever music they play. In fact, it's so bad that the verse is right before he prays. He says that Capernaum, his main city of ministry, is worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how bad they're ignoring the Messiah has been. And it's at that particular time in the mess, people aren't responding the way they should. 
where Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. First notice how Jesus, um, how he uh, addresses God. He calls him Father first. So at the core of his being, right, God is like a tender-hearted father with a brand new baby. There is love in his heart. It pours from him. That's who he is. All of his other attributes flow from that. He's father first. But this tender-hearted father is also the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, he rules. He's sovereign. He controls. Nothing happens apart from his will. And this tender-hearted, sovereign father is accomplishing his gracious will in the middle of the mess. What's his gracious will? It is to reveal himself, to reveal the things of salvation to little children and to even hide them from the wise and understanding. Now, the identity of these two people is very important. Uh, first, the children. Now, Jesus is not saying here that if you're under 11, you, you are righteous, okay? That's not the point. Anyone here who knows people who are under 11 knows that, right? Um, but uh, in Matthew 18, Jesus will tell his disciples to humble themselves like little children. And having children, that verse has always been hard for me because my children think they're the center of the universe, right? Like most children do, you know? Um, so I had to chew on, what is the humility of a child here? And I think it's a very particular kind of humility that knows it cannot provide for itself. If children do one thing right, they know that they cannot meet their own needs. Right? Somebody's hungry, daddy, 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 right? Somebody has a boo-boo, mommy, mommy, mommy. Like, like children know where to come. They're humble enough. They're not having philosophical debates about whether mom or dad are gonna meet their needs. They just come. That's the humility of a child. People who are desperate. It's good news that all you have to do is to know you can't run your own life to have the Father revealed to you. In contrast to these children, uh, are the wise and understanding. Jesus certainly uses this term ironically. It's sarcastic. Now, there are other places in the scriptures we know, right, where wisdom's a good thing, it's the fear of the Lord. But here, this is a particular kind of wisdom that says, I have got life on my own, right? I get it. I have a watertight worldview. My, uh, my life is fine. I don't want anybody's input, right? Someone who's wise and understanding, Jesus says, come, and they say, answer my intellectual objection first, right? Jesus says, go, obey me. And they say, just show me a sign first. I want confirmation. That's someone who wise understanding. They don't, they don't come. They're not dependent. So Jesus looks around his ministry and he sees the lowest rungs of society are coming. The disciples are still knuckleheads, but they're growing. All right, the Pharisees plotting to kill him. By the, end of, uh, by the end of Matthew 12, his own mother wants to side rail his ministry. The cities aren't really responding, but here's what he sees. In the middle of all of this, God's doing what he's always doing. He's doing what's best. He's revealing himself to little children. His gracious will is being accomplished. Jesus has joy there. You can too. But that's part one of God's gracious will. Part two of God's gracious will is in verse 27. So first, the father's revealing himself to little children. And in verse 27, it says, all things have been handed over to me 
by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now this verse reveals two astounding claims, one very offensive and one that might help us with the offense a little bit. The the first claim is that Jesus here, he claims absolute 100% prerogative and sovereignty over who comes to God. He's the only way to the Father. In fact, those who come are those whom he chooses. Now, again, if you've been raised in America and you've been taught since the day that you were born that you are an independent, autonomous, self-determining individual, that can be very offensive. It's not easy to read the first time, but this text reveals something else that I think will make us a little bit, e- a little bit easier to embrace this. Just notice that we don't just get a picture of joy in the mess. We get a picture of the mystery of God. Do you notice this text? Is God in the flesh speaking to God the Father, right? All of a sudden we're like out of the mess of life and we're, on, we're into the mystery of who God is, right? We, 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 God is revealed here. and he's not, he's not a simple, one-personed, I can reason my way to this God, this kind of God and country, like moral lawgiver. No, no, he's Father, Son, and as the rest of the scriptures reveal, Holy Spirit. God himself, one nature, perfect, beautiful, three persons. One nature, three persons. And they've always been that way. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have always existed. Um, that's a mystery. You don't, you don't explain that with funny illustrations or philosophical models. You just embrace it like a child. But notice that the Trinity here and in the rest of the scriptures is beautiful. You may not be able to wrap your rational brain around it, but you can enjoy its beauty. Look at the Father. Look what the Father's doing. The Father is graciously giving to all. Notice that at his core, at the very core of who he is, the Father overflows. First, he overflows to reveal himself to little children. Then he overflows to give everything to the Son. Do you notice that? Right? First John 3 says, God is love. Why is God love? Because the Father and the Son and the Spirit have always been loving each other. They've been pouring out love on each other. You read, the, you read the Gospel of John, one second Jesus is saying, I want to glorify the Father. Next second he's saying, the Father's going to glorify me. The Son and Father and Spirit are always loving and glorifying and lifting each other up. God is beautiful. He's lovely. He's good. And he is including us in his very life. Notice verse 27, it looks like the Son and the Father are exclusive. And then it says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When Jesus reveals himself to people, he doesn't just forgive their sins, though he does. He doesn't just uh, help them live a fulfilling life, though he does. He includes them, he brings them in to the very life of God himself. What is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to know Jesus? It is to be included in the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, to embrace that, to have that poured out on your life. All this talk of joy in the scriptures, all this talk of peace, it all flows from being included into the life of God himself. 
So listen, salvation is certainly forgiveness of sins by trusting in the cross of Jesus. It is certainly being right before God the Father because Jesus obeyed perfectly in your place. But the point of Jesus' work on the cross was not just to forgive you so you could live life your way. The point of forgiveness and justification and adoption was to bring you in to this life of God, to include you in this love. So, um, if God is beautiful, right? If he is lovely, if at the core of his heart, he has always been good and he always will be, then surely we can say, it's good that he's sovereign. It's good that he's in control. And this God, right, the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I choose to whom I reveal the Father, he also chose to die. Jesus chooses to die on the cross, right? Nobody forces it, nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. Jesus chose to become a man, to live a perfect life, to die, to suffer, to bear wrath, to be forsaken by God. The next time Jesus speaks to the Father in Matthew will be in the Garden of Gethsemane when he can see the wrath of God about to be poured out on him, right? The, the Jesus who chooses people chose to suffer and die to make the way open to God. So if that's who God is, that's how kind and gracious he is, it is good that he chooses. Because, that's the reason that's important is because the key to joy in the mess what gave Jesus the ability to rejoice when things in ministry did not seem so good, when the numbers were declining, was that he saw that God is always doing what is best. It's not that he will eventually do what is best. It is that right now, in the mess of my life, in the trials of your circumstances, in the people you're trying to minister to who are not responding, God is doing what is best. He's revealing himself to little children and those little children don't just, get, don't just get forgiveness of sins, they get inclusion into the very life of God. Consider this quote from your bulletin uh, from the Lord of the Rings. I am a uh, Lord of the Rings guy, um, but if you're not, I'm not gonna judge you, okay? I'm married to someone who's not a Lord of the Rings person, but uh, they're great books. There's good, uh, some good allegorical moments there to the Christian faith. There's a really great moment though, uh, the last book in The Return of the King. Just a summary real quick. Our heroes have gotten to their destination and their destination is actually pretty terrible. They have this moment where they realize we may not get out of here alive. Things are looking pretty dim here. And one of the main characters, Sam, he sees something above the mountains. Here's what he sees. Far above the mountains in the west, the night sky was dim and pale. There, Peeping among the cloud rack above a dark peak high in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Christian, your joy this morning is that whatever the darkness is in your life, whatever the shadow 
is this morning the light and high beauty of God's purposes in Christ shine above that. They never fail. Set your eyes there, put your trust there, and you'll find joy. But just, uh, there's just joy for the children. Just notice that. The Father's revealed to the children. And in any, any group this size, right, there are people in here, in this room this morning, whether you know you're not a Christian or, or maybe you've been thinking you're a Christian for a long time, but what you're doing is you're trusting in yourself to make you righteous. You're trusting in yourself to be able to live your life. You might, you might, you might have the, the outward veneers of being in church and being moral, but in your heart, you've never humbled yourself like a child and received salvation. So what's the first thing? What do you do? What do I do if I'm seeking God? What do I do if I hear that? The first thing is to humble yourself like a child. Listen, if you have questions, man, we'd love to answer those questions, man. The Bible is, is the, the Christian worldview makes sense, all right? There's answers to it. But the first thing you need is not answers to your questions. The first thing you need is to humble yourself. And likewise, if you've been walking the Lord for 20 years, it is really easy when you start to have some Christian experience to start to trust in your Christian experience and not trust in Jesus. Maybe this morning you're in a dry spell. You haven't really experienced God's favor or his grace or his joy in a while. And the reason very well might be is that you're living like somebody who's wise and understanding. And the first thing you need to do is just humble yourself. You want joy, you wanna know God, humble yourself. Come to him like a child again. So there is joy for us in a sovereign, good God working out his purposes. Um, but what comes next in this passage is astounding. Um, it's very tense. Jesus says in one breath, the Father and I are completely sovereign. I choose. In the next breath, he says, come to me. All right? Those don't seem to make sense. It's very tense. It's like you've taken a string and wrapped it around your fingers and you're pulling it tight. It's so tense. Right? But we see Jesus here God's sovereignty and the open and free offer to come right now and receive life are paired together. And I think just uh, before we really get into the text, I just want to say that uh, if, if Jesus did that, if that was his perspective, we should take that up as well, right? With one breath, right? I should say, God is sovereign, but I am coming to Jesus, right? God is sovereign, but I am going to those that I love, I'm going to lost people, I'm going to my neighbors, and I'm telling them, come and find rest. There's a tension there, it's one we should embrace. Back to the text, look at verse, uh, look, at the ver look at verse 28, 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I had read this passage maybe a hundred times before I noticed something that really helped me, and so I just wanna share that. Uh, verses 28 and 29 are parallel. They describe the same reality. Just notice with me, they both begin with a command. Verse 28 begins with a command, come. Verse 29 begins with a command, take my yoke. The second part of each verse is a qualification. It describes 
who's coming, who they're coming to. First, the, the weary and heavy laden are the ones coming. Then uh, they're coming to Jesus, who's gentle and lowly in heart. Finally, the verses end with a promise. You will find rest. You'll find rest for your souls. And if I've lost you there, uh, the whole point of that is that we take these together. They describe one reality. Coming to Jesus is learning from Jesus. The rest he gives is rest for our souls. But let's dive in and see. So first, see the command for rest. See, Jesus says first, come to me. This is a, this is a command that, that specifically refers to changing locations. It's like you're standing over there and he says, come over here. I think the idea as we interpret it is that everybody to one degree or another lives apart from God. We make ourselves righteous. We live in our own power. We try to atone for our own sins. We anxiously worry about the direction of our lives. And Jesus says to all of those things, leave that place, come to me. Come into the light of my presence. Coming is learning. Uh, Jesus says next, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Um, when you come to Jesus, you learn from him. Uh, this, this idea of taking my yoke upon you, that's not a, an egg yoke. It's a, a yoke was a wooden bar that was put over oxen's shoulders uh, to help them bear their loads. Um, it, made, it made loads easier to care for animals or to carry for animals. And so anyways, uh, the idea here is everybody, everybody's got a yoke. We all carry something. We're all, we're all pulling something. And Jesus says, if you want life, you need to carry the yoke that I give. Not your own, not the world's, not your culture's. Take my yoke. Give your allegiance to me. And the idea of learning here, uh, this word learn, it's the same root as the word translated other places, disciple. So the idea is when you come to Jesus, you become his disciple. And I want to be clear here. You come freely, right? You just come. But when you come, you don't have to have your life together. You don't have to have it all figured out, but you just have to be willing to learn, willing to change. Not already changed, just willing to change. So that's the command. You come, you enter his presence, you receive his gift. But next, look at the qualifications for rest. This is just beautiful. Who's invited to come to Jesus? It's those who labor and are heavy laden. The NIV probably gets the sense a little bit better when it says that they're the weary and heavy laden. The idea of this word that's translated labor, it gives a picture of both, of both the work and of the exhaustion after the work. We just sodded my backyard with grass. It's still growing, I'm encouraged. Um, we normally kill plants, we have kept the grass alive. Congratulations to us. Um, but we did a lot of the prep work uh, to sod our backyard. I demoed a deck with some guys. We chainsawed some uh, limbs and stuff down. Anyways, uh, as a dad, I do most of my yard work during my children's nap times, which is one to four, uh, one to three, depending on the day. And uh, I did this a couple weeks ago. Just happened to be the week where we had 107 degree heat indexes all day. And so you can just picture me a couple hours after, uh, after a couple hours of yard work laid out on my floor, basically incoherent with exhaustion. That's the idea of this word. It's laboring with a 170 degree heat index and all the feelings that go along with that. And here is the beautiful thing. The only requirement to come to Jesus in this text is that life has done that to you. That, 
that the burden of living in your own power, providing for your own needs, carrying the fate of other people's souls, that the burden of that has worn you out, that it's made you say, I can't do this anymore. It's made you almost want to give up. That's the only requirement to come. You just have to realize you're at the end of your rope. It's wonderful. Who are you coming to? You're coming to Jesus who is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is a perfect match for weary sinners because he's a gentle master. I think sometimes we have this picture of Jesus that he's looking up at the sky and he's stern and frustrated with us. And, and, and really guys, Jesus says here, I'm gentle, I'm humble. He's been a man. God became a man. He knows what it's like to suffer, right? He knows what temptation's like. He's gentle. He doesn't, he doesn't beat you over the head with the Bible. He takes the beating for you. He enables you to live. He, he suffered perfectly. He can help you suffer well. He's gentle. He's with you. So we're commanded to come. We can come if we're weary. He's gentle and lowly. Finally, notice this promise of rest here. It's a precious promise. You will find rest. You will find rest for your souls. The idea of this word is refreshment, renewal, peace. Stuff is right inside. That's the sense here. Notice uh, it's rest for your souls, though. I've got to say this because it's summertime. We're all on vacation, right? The kind of rest that Jesus offers is not, you know, your feet are kicked up and you're watching Netflix or you're on the beach sipping something cold, right? Like, like that's not the idea here. Um, the idea of this rest is rest inside. In fact, I think it's connected to the Father and the Son, right? You're included in the life of God. You finally have what you were made for, relating to God, knowing him, having his love poured out on your life experiencing truth, not just hearing it, but experiencing God's love for you in Christ, having the Spirit speak peace, finally having someone say, it is finished over your life. Not having to labor to please God or to please others. Finally, you're spoken for. That's the rest that Jesus promises us here. And I think uh, it's just beautiful that our greatest desire, right, finally be okay in here, right? Our greatest desire, the thing we spend so much of our lives aiming for, Jesus just offers it freely if we will just come. What you've always longed for is God's very command for you this morning. It's beautiful. And I think this promise for rest has been precious in all ages, but I think particularly in our day, it is particularly precious. We live in a very restless age I think in some senses, Western culture has long promised us that once we get peace and prosperity, everything will be okay. And in fact, we've kind of found that. A lot of us have found some circumstantial peace. There's no wars in the United States, right? We found some prosperity, and yet there is no rest. Americans are more depressed and anxious now than they have ever been. There's a, there's a whole generation, right? The I generation, right? Uh, under 18 people, okay? Uh, the Atlantic recently wrote an article that said these, uh, these Americans, primarily because of technology, are on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Wow. The great savior of Western culture, right? Technology has not provided rest. 
promised rest and not provided it. You know, I read that article, it reminded me of a book I just finished um, called Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Uh, it's a very interesting book, slightly depressing book, but it tells a story of a government that enslaves its people, not by the normal means, not like North Korea does, okay, but by giving them everything they want. They just give the people all the comfort and pleasure and enjoyment they could ever ask for. Everybody's comfortable. Everybody has 35-hour-a-week jobs. There's even a happy pill. It's in the book. You can just take a pill, and immediately you feel happy. Every problem cared for. They abolish marriage and family, so they grow children in laboratories again. Brave New Worlds looks out of the book, but... They, so nobody has responsibility, right? You just get to play your whole life. And uh, every character in this book is restless. They're yearning, they're longing. And there's this one character, uh, he's ironically called a savage because he is raised outside of this crazy civilization and actually comes back into it. And uh, he has this moral sense that all of us are born with, right? That we should be good and right and you see him, the whole book, just striving to do the right thing. He's trying hard. He's working at it. And the book ends with him hanging himself. And when I first read that, I just, I was so mad. Like, why? Like, he's the only good guy in the whole book. And then I realized something. I think Huxley's point is that if you seek rest and having enjoyment and pleasure and ease your whole life, what you're actually going to find is you're going to be a slave to it and you're going to be restless. Likewise, if you seek rest through moral effort or maybe as a Christian through trying to obey as best as you can, through doing the right thing, from finding your identity and being an honorable person, if you seek life there, you're going to despair. And in the middle of those two weary roads and Jesus stands this morning the one way to find rest for your soul he offers it freely to you he's done everything necessary already that you can come and find life with God right now so wherever you are this morning come to Jesus Maybe you've been searching after the Lord for a while. Maybe it's, you've just started to realize, I've been around church my whole life, but I really don't have this relationship to God through Jesus thing going. Here's the wonderful news. It's, uh, the, the quote's in your bulletin. Charles Spurgeon said this, the cry of the Christian religion is one simple word, come. You wanna know God? Just start by coming to Jesus. It's that simple. Come to the rest he offers. Come to the life he provides. Just come, wherever you are, just come. Are you doubting your faith? Come. Some of you uh, here are pretty assured in your faith and I'm glad the Lord's given you that. Um, but maybe you need the reminder that it's not just salvation that starts by coming and resting. It's the entire Christian life. Don't you know that Jesus wants your entire life to flow from rest? Don't you know that he wants your obedience 
and your sacrifices and your walking through trials and your difficulties in your families and all the things you have going on, he wants those to flow from a heart that's at rest with him. That's his desire for you. He, he wants to give you what you long for, but you have to come. Maybe a, maybe a question to help you come this morning would be this. What are you carrying here this morning? What makes you weary? What keeps you up at night? You uh, anxiously trying to provide for yourself? You uh, guilty? Do you live your whole life with a guilty conscience trying to make up for it? Are you grieving? Are you sorrowful? Bring that to Jesus. Take that one thing and bring that to him. You will find rest. He promises it here. And don't just come once. Keep coming. You know, Psalm 71.3 says, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. Let that be your prayer this week. Lord, let me just keep coming to you with this. Let me just bring this to you. Help me find rest here. So see Jesus in the middle of the mess offering us rest. So I never finished my story about my moment on the Ravenel Bridge. Unfortunately, it was short-lived. After my children did some really cute things, we were running little races on the top of the bridge there, it was great. We, it's time to go, it's time to go to leave, and we noticed the stroller that somebody has stolen Sarah's phone, my wife Sarah's phone, off of our stroller. We, I literally, I didn't get a second to like, I didn't even transition back into messiness, right? It's like, boom, there you are. Welcome to a fallen world. And uh, for some of you this morning, you are not gonna get to leave this room until you are back in the middle of it. Heck, maybe you're going to pick up your mess from the preschool hallway, right? You know? Maybe you're going back to a, another weary and lonely Sunday afternoon. Maybe you're going back to your grief or your guilt. The beautiful thing this morning is that Jesus does not offer us rest away from our circumstances. He doesn't offer us vacations from our pain. He offers us rest in the middle of our messes. He offers us peace and joy and life with God in the middle of all that life holds. So come to him, find the rest you desire in relationship to Jesus. And you very well might find yourself in a string of moments seeing the beauty of your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that as we just, just saw that your primary requirement of us this morning is that we just come. And I just plead that, that we, are, we are all in different places this morning, Lord, and you know that. Um, some of us are grieving, some of us are sorrowful, some of us are resisting you. And I just pray wherever we are that your spirit would enable us to come to you, to rest afresh, to enjoy you, to trust you. Please this week, Lord, give rest to our souls. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.